Hello, this is Abel, and I want to introduce a new podcast about ancient Rome, the Tale of Rome. From Troy to Constantinople, half history, half novel. And for some 900 years, we will follow one family, generation after generation. From 753 BC to 476 AD, this family will grow. Some will be rich and some will be slaves. Some will be good and some will be bad. Some will be powerful and some will die in the arena. And as we follow this family, we will go through ancient Rome. The kings, the republic, and the empire. From a humble beginning to a world power, to a fall so big it set humans into the dark ages. One episode a week on a podcast player near you. The Tale of Rome. Thank you for listening. For more, please visit thetaleofrome.com. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 67, Hephaestus and Hermes. Hephaestus was originally a god of fire, both of earthly fire and the fire of the volcanoes. In fact, Hephaestus' name functions in Homer as a synonym for fire, and so he became the god of blacksmiths, metalworking, carpenters, craftsmen, artisans, sculptors, and so forth. Hephaestus' origins lie in the Bronze Age sacralization of metalworking. He might be associated with the Linear B inscription Apaicho, found at Knossos. This association has been made because his name can be observed in names of places of pre-Greek origin, such as Phaistos, which is known to be Paito in Linear B. His name is certainly not Greek, though, and most likely his worship was brought to mainland Greece from Anatolia via Lemnos, an ancient seat of his cult, where the capital city was called Hephaestia. The pre-Greek Lemnians, known to Homer as the Sintians, were credited with the invention of fire and the technique of forging weapons. Hephaestus is similar to craft-related deities like the Talkinis of Rhodes, the Idian Dactyloi, and the Cyclops, who forged Zeus's thunderbolts, though his individual personality is more fully developed. In certain myths, he is a craftsman magician, creator of fabulous animated statues with talismanic and apopatraic powers and he became a member of the Twelve Olympian Gods by the time of Homer, but his popularity was expressed primarily through poetry and the visual arts, not necessarily cultic practices. There are two traditions concerning Hephaestus' birth. According to Homer, in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, he was a son of Zeus and Hera and grew up with the rest of the gods on Mount Olympus. 
Once, during one of his parents' quarrels, Hephaestus attempted to defend his mother as she was being physically beaten by Zeus. This irritated Zeus greatly, so he grabbed him by the foot and flung him from Mount Olympus. He fell for the period of one whole day, until at sunset he landed more dead than alive, on the barren, volcanic island of Lemnos. He was taken care of by its people, the Sintians, but the fall had left him crippled. From then on, Lemnos became Hephaestus' favorite forge. Another tradition, attested by Hesiod, has it that Hera had produced him unilaterally, without the help of Zeus, because she was jealous that Zeus had produced the beautiful Athena from his own head. Hera was very distraught, because in her mind, Zeus had just produced a child in his own accord, and if he could do that, he wouldn't have use for her. Also, she was the goddess of childbirth, so a male giving birth gave concern to Hera. Because in ancient Greece, there were two kinds of women, the ones you loved and the ones who were citizens and could produce children. Hera was the child-producing kind. So Hera runs off in distress to the Garden of Flora at the end of the world. Here was where she was married and first made love to Zeus, the ultimate source of a woman's power. It was a mystical place with magical plants and was ruled over by Zephyr, the god of the west wind, who represents the warm winds of springtime that fertilize and make plants grow. In this garden, there was a flower so fertile that if you touch it, you will become pregnant. And so Hera touches it, and she became pregnant without the help of Zeus. But she could only give birth to an ugly child, in contrast to the beauty and symmetry of the other gods, especially Athena, who Zeus had created himself. According to Homer, Hephaestus was born with twisted legs that forced him to hobble when he walked, which aroused unquenchable laughter by the other gods during their many banquets on Mount Olympus. Several later texts also follow Hesiod's account, including the Bibliotheca, Hyginus, and the preface to the Fabulae. Some Greeks took this myth and said that a normal child cannot be born without the help of males, and they'll come out mutilated and lame. Aristotle in his History of Animals said, quote, By herself, the female can never be anything but a mutilated and sterile male. She can provide the seed, but she can't provide a seed that can sufficiently cook the egg. End quote. His point is that women were not the essential ingredients in procreation. Other Greek scientific philosophers disagreed, and the matter remained disputed throughout antiquity. Furthermore, on Attic vase paintings, we often see Hephaestus present at the birth of Athena, and in fact he wields the axe, which splits Zeus's head to free her. Here he is represented as being older than Athena, so as we can see, the two accounts are inconsistent. Regardless, Hephaestus is unique amongst the Olympians in his physical imperfection. Hera was so ashamed of his ugliness and deformities that she ultimately rejected him and kicked him off of Mount Olympus, at which point he fell into the sea. But he was taken in by the sea nymphs, Thetis and Euronomi. For nine years, he remained concealed in the ocean depths in the cave of Nereus and became fascinated by all of the volcanic activity that took place there. He soon proved himself skilled in the work of the blacksmith, and so he spent his time forging thousands of ingenious objects for the two nymphs who rescued him. But Hephaestus also plotted his revenge. One day, Hera received a gift from her rejected son, a golden throne so artistically wrought that she could not wait to sit on it. But when she sat down, invisible bonds wrapped around her that rendered her immobile. The other immortals tried in vain to extricate her from this clever trap, but their efforts were to no avail. So they resolved that they must bring Hephaestus back up to Mount Olympus in order to unlock the chair's mysteries. Hephaestus, however, refused to leave his ocean home he even went so far as to say that he no longer has a mother. So Ares tried to drag him up by force, as we would expect from the god of war, but Hephaestus put him to flight by throwing firebrands at him. Dionysus was more successful, though. 
He got Hephaestus good and drunk, and then attached him to a donkey which carried him back up to Mount Olympus, accompanied by reveling satyrs and maenads, a scene that often appears on painted pottery. It was one thing to get him to Mount Olympus, though, as they still needed to get him to agree to release his mother from the trap. Predictably, Hephaestus refused to release her until his demands were met. He wanted to be considered an equal to the Olympian gods and to take Aphrodite, the loveliest of the immortals, as his bride. Only in the Odyssey, though, is Aphrodite first mentioned as his wife. After making Zeus swear to him that he would satisfy all of his desires, he released his mother, and after the two reconciled, from that time on, Hera and her son loved each other. As we are informed in the Gigantomachy, he would also go on to be devoted to Zeus, who was either his father or his stepfather. Hephaestus was a favorite of Homer, who describes both his awesome skills as a craftsman and his role as a peacemaker amongst the gods. He attributes to him the epithet Halkias, or coppersmith, since out of all of the gods, he was the most skilled and the most inventive as a metal craftsman. In Lemnos, he had organized his workshop when he was very young. In another version, when he was appointed as guard of the defeated Typhon, who Zeus had thrown under Mount Etna in Sicily, it is said that he had organized another workshop on the neck of his father's enemy. For this, he received the epithet Aetneos, or of Etna. On Mount Olympus, he had yet another workshop in which he created the most significant metal works in the world. Every night he went to work at his furnace with the assistance of the Cyclops. There he built all kinds of amazing objects. In fact, almost every finely wrought piece of metalwork in Greek myth was said to have been forged by Hephaestus. As a great architect and builder, he had constructed the dwellings of the gods on Mount Olympus and the bed for the chariot of the sun god Helios so that he can rest at night as he is carried from west to east in order to begin his journey again the next morning. Furthermore, some of the famous creations of his that he fashioned were Zeus's throne and his thunderbolts, Hermes' winged helmet and sandals, the Aegis breastplate, Aphrodite's famed girdle, as well as Demeter's sickle, the arrows of Apollo and Artemis, Ariadne's wreath, Harmonia's necklace, Pelops' shoulder, Eros's bow and arrows, among many others for the gods, as well as weapons for famous heroes, such as Perseus' scythe, Heracles's golden weapons, and Achilles' armor, with his famous shield adorned with exquisite depictions, as described in the Iliad by Homer. Hephaestus was not only a mere constructor of metal objects, but also a great inventor of machinery and living creatures. The Homeric poems attest to his special power to produce motion. He used earth and water to mold Pandora, the first woman, and gave her beauty in a human voice, along with her pithos that she infamously opened. He used copper to create a giant named Talus, who guarded Crete and roamed the island continuously, a valuable gift to Minos. He also infused life into the golden and silver hounds at the entrance of the palace of Alcanus in such a way that they could bite the invaders. The Greeks maintained in their civilization an animistic idea that statues are in some sense alive. This kind of animistic belief in art can also be seen in the myths of Daedalus, the builder of the labyrinth, who made images that moved of their own accord. A statue of the god or goddess was somehow the god itself, and the image on a man's tomb somehow indicated his presence. Corresponding rituals intended to imbue real statues with such powers are also well attested in Assyria, Anatolia, and Egypt. Taking that a step further, Hephaestus also made artificial beings from gold to serve him in the forge since his legs were weak. This included tripods that walked to and from Mount Olympus. 
Homer refers to them in a striking passage about the visit by Thetis to his forge in order to procure new armor for his son Achilles. Quote, Thetis found Hephaestus sweating as he turned here and there to his bellows busily, since he was working on twenty tripods at once. Hephaestus took the huge blower off from the block of the anvil while limping, and yet his withered legs moved lightly and nimbly beneath him. He set the bellows away from the fire, and gathered, and put away all the tools with which he worked in a silver toolbox. Then, with a sponge, he wiped clean his forehead and both hands, and likewise he cleaned his massive neck and hairy chest, and put on a tunic, and took up a heavy stick in his hand, and went to the doorway limping, and in support of their master moved his attendants. These attendants are golden, and in appearance like living young women. Their hearts possess some form of intelligence, and they have the ability to speak in strength, and from the immortal gods, they have learned how to do things. These stirred nimbly in support of their master, end quote. Thetis, it should be emphasized, came to this sooty, grimy place in order to seek from a lame, dirty god magnificent new weaponry for her son. It is ironic that the ugliest of the gods is the very one who brought so much beauty into their lives. During the Trojan War, Hephaestus sided with the Hellenes. As we mentioned, he was grateful to Thetis, who had rescued him when he fell from Mount Olympus into the sea, and so he forged new armor for her son Achilles, after his was stripped by Hector off the dead body of Patroclus. Also, when the river god Scamander rushed down to drown Achilles in his new armor, when he was slain the Trojans, Hephaestus was receptive to the plea of his mother Hera, and filled the river banks with huge fires and burnt everything on the plain. Furthermore, Hephaestus was a generous and lovable god. He liked to offer gifts to the mortals and the immortals alike, and sympathized with the miserable ones, and thus saw to their well-being. It was with great reluctance that he followed Zeus's orders to fasten Prometheus atop the Caucasus Mountains. He sympathized with the handsome giant Orion, who was blinded by Oenepion and Chios, and so he helped him meet Helios to ask for his eyesight back. When Pelops threw Myrtilus into the sea and his quest for atonement reached the edge of the ocean, Hephaestus ensured that his request would be fulfilled. In addition, when Lemnos was left without men because of the rage of Aphrodite, since he loved the island very much, he persuaded his wife to forgive the women and send them the Argonauts to impregnate them so that a new generation was created. Although he was married to Aphrodite, his wife wasn't very faithful, as she had many affairs with both mortals and gods. In particular, she really lusted after Ares, the god of war. Eventually, Hephaestus discovered their affair, thanks to Helios, the all-seeing sun god, and planned to catch them in the act. As described in the Odyssey, he made an unbreakable metal net in which he ensnared his unfaithful wife in the arms of her lover, as they lay together in his bed. He then dragged them to Mount Olympus to shame them in front of the other gods, and the gods laughed at the sight of these naked lovers. When the laughter finally died down, Poseidon persuaded Hephaestus to free them in return for a guarantee that Ares would pay the adulterous fine. Hephaestus stated that he would return Aphrodite to her father and demand it back his bride price. The Thebans told that the union of Ares and Aphrodite produced Harmonia, which we mentioned in episode 46. However, of the union of Hephaestus with Aphrodite, the Roman poet Virgil said that they produced Eros. Later authors, though, say that Eros was actually sired by Ares, but was passed off to Hephaestus as his own son. 
Hephaestus was sometimes portrayed as a vigorous man with a beard and was characterized by a smith's hammer or some other crafting tool, such as an anvil or a pair of tongs, his oval cap, and the chiton. He is described in mythological sources as kolos, or lame, epidanos, or halting, and amphigais, or he who walks with the aid of a stick. This is because he is depicted with crippled feet and as being misshapen, either from birth or as a result of his fall from Olympus, as we have mentioned. In vase paintings, Hephaestus also typically portrayed as being lame and bent over with his anvil, hard at work on a metal creation, and sometimes with his feet back to front. The Argonaut, Palamonius, which literally means a son of Hephaestus, meaning he was a bronze smith, was also lame. Other sons of Hephaestus were the Cabari on the island of Samothrace, which he sired with Cabero, the daughter of Proteus. They aided him in his workshop and were also lame, and have been identified with a Carcanos, or crab, by the lexicographer Hesychius. The adjective Carcanopus, or crab-footed, came to signify lame. In some myths, Hephaestus built himself a wheeled chair, or chariot, in order to move around, thus helping him overcome his lameness while demonstrating his skill to the other gods. In the Iliad, as we mentioned, Hephaestus built 20 bronze-wheeled tripods in order to assist him in moving around to and from Mount Olympus. Hephaestus's ugly appearance and lameness is taken by some to represent arsenicosis, an effect of high levels of arsenic exposure that would result in lameness and skin cancers. In place of less easily available tin, arsenic was added to copper in the Bronze Age to harden it, and thus most smiths of the Bronze Age would have suffered from chronic poisoning as a result of their livelihood. Consequently, the mythic image of the lame smith is widespread, as Hephaestus was an Iron Age smith, not a Bronze Age one. The connection is from ancient folk memory. Parallels in other mythological systems for Hephaestus' symbolism include the Ugarit craftsman god, Kothar Wakasis, who is identified from afar by his distinctive walk, possibly suggesting that he limps. And according to Herodotus, the Egyptian craftsman god Ta was a dwarf, naked and deformed. And in Norse mythology, Wayland the smith was a lame bronze worker. The center for the cult of Hephaestus was located on the island of Lemnos in the northeastern Aegean Sea and in northwestern Asia Minor, where Hephaestus was somehow connected with the archaic pre-Greek Phrygian and Thracian mystery cult of the Cabari, who in Lemnos were also called the Hephaestoi, or the men of Hephaestus. One of the three Lemnian tribes also called themselves Hephaestion, and claimed direct descent from the god. Hephaestus was believed to have great healing powers, and Terra Lemnia, or Lemnian Earth, from the spot upon which Hephaestus had fallen, was believed to cure madness and hemorrhages, and priests of Hephaestus knew how to cure wounds inflicted by snake bites. He is perhaps the god of the famous yearly fire festival at Lemnos, which involved the extinguishing of all fires on the island for nine days, until a ship brought new fire from which all of the domestic hearths and forges could be kindled anew and purified. In the time of Philostratus of Lemnos in the 3rd century AD, our source for this festival, the fire was brought from Delos. But if the festival existed in the classical period, the new fire may have been seen as a gift from the island's patron deity. In Sophocles' Philoctetes, the titled character, stranded on Lemnos, cries out to, quote, Lemnian earth and the all-powerful flame wrought by Hephaestus, end quote. The god of metalworking and fire was also associated by Greek colonists in southern Italy with the volcano gods Adranus of Mount Etna and Vulcanus of the Lipari Islands. 
In addition, the Romans claimed their equivalent god, Vulcan, to have produced Cacus, the fire-breathing giant that terrorized the Aventine Hill before Heracles killed him, as we mentioned in episode 47, and Cacalus, the founder of Pinesti, who appears in Virgil's Aeneid as an ally of Turnus against Aeneas and the Trojans. The major locus of Hephaestus' cult outside Lemnos, though, was at Athens, as the cult was transferred to Athens at the end of the 6th century BC, when Lemnos fell under Athenian dominion. The god was integrated very early into the local pantheon, and had a special affinity with Athens and their myths. Due to his craftsmanship, Hephaestus was closely bonded with the goddess Athena. As we discussed in episode 24, he later fell in love with her and attempted sexual advances on her, but with no success. She refused him because of his unsightly appearance and crippled nature, and so he grew very angry and forceful with her. Since he was married to Aphrodite, who was constantly unfaithful to him, with a number of gods and mortals, he had been sex-depraved, and so in his lust, chasing after Athena, he prematurely ejaculated. From his divine semen, however, which fell into the ground of the Athenian Acropolis, was born Erechthonius, a subsequent king of Athens who Athena raised as a foster. Hephaestus therefore was ancestral to the Athenian people, and had an altar in the Erechtheion. He fathered no children with Aphrodite, unless you consider Eros to be his, but he did sire several sons with some mortal women, including the aforementioned Kaberi, as well as Periphetes. Like his father, Periphetes was lame in one leg and had one eye like a cyclops. He roamed the road from Athens to Troezen, where he robbed travelers and killed them with his bronze club. A young Theseus encountered him on his way to reunite with his father Aegeus at Athens. Theseus tricked him into giving him his club so that he could check to see if it was really bronze. When he did, he bashed him in the head and killed him. Periphetes was one of the many brigands that Theseus defeated as a sort of rite of passage before claiming his birthright at Athens. Hephaestus was particularly worshipped in the manufacturing and industrial area of the Athenian Agora, because as a fire deity, Hephaestus was important to those who worked with forges and kilns. People set up clay statues and plaques of the god beside hearths and kilns as an overseer of the fire. During the 5th century BC, at the Athenian Agora on the hill of Agoraeus Colonus, his luxurious temple was constructed in which he was worshipped along with the goddess Athena Ergena. His cult was combined with that of others who had attributes similar to him, such as Prometheus and Athena. In Athens, there was held two festivals, the Ephestia and the Halkea, or bronze work, in honor of he and Athena, as patrons of craft workers. During the Apatoria, the festival at which a man's sons were presented for enrollment as citizens, certain Athenians dressed in magnificent clothing and lit torches from the hearth while singing hymns for Hephaestus. A fragmentary decree of 421-420 BC shows that the Hephaestia was reorganized in that year as a large-scale celebration, including a torch race, sponsored by the tribes, and an interesting contest of ox lifting to be performed by 200 chosen youths, with the oxen subsequently sacrificed to the god. In the same year, Alchemenes began work on the cult statues for the aforementioned new temple of Hephaestus, which overlooked the busy commercial center of the city, and uniquely, was destined to survive into modern times, almost fully preserved. We discussed this temple in great detail in episode 66. Sadly, though, the same survival cannot be said for the two bronze cult statues, one of Athena and one of Hephaestus, though later copies give us clues as to what they would have looked like. And ancient visitors praised this statue of the god because it minimized his deformity, typical of idealism in Greek art. 
So that's Hephaestus. There too is another god that we must discuss who was critical to the manufacturing and commerce found in the Athenian Agora. Of course, I'm talking about Hermes, who was the second youngest of the twelve Olympian gods, with Dionysus being the youngest. Unlike the other Olympian deities, though, Hermes had few sanctuaries, festivals, and temples. Instead, he was preeminent in private, neighborhood, and domestic contexts, often in connection with other deities worshipped in the countryside. In fact, the earliest attested form of his name appears in Linear B as Amaha, and most scholars derive the name Hermes from the Greek Herma, which means a heap of stones, or a boundary marker, since he was a god of boundaries, and their transgression. There will be more on Hermi shortly. Anyways, Hermes came to preside over a host of related domains. Essentially, every single attribute of Hermes derives from the fact that he is the god of the wind, and all phenomena associated with the wind. He could reach any place in a split second, and as the wind whirls and changes everything, he also changes the fates of humans. And so he was the emissary and messenger of the gods. Hermes was also the divine trickster, as he outwits other gods for his own satisfaction, or for the sake of humankind. And he is described as moving freely between the worlds of the mortal and the divine, and was the conductor of the souls into the afterlife. He was also viewed as the protector and patron of herdsmen, thieves, heralds, and travelers. Like Apollo and Pan, Hermes has an important pastoral function, especially in the oldest center of his worship, Arcadia. From there, the cult would have been taken to Athens and then radiated to the whole of Greece, particularly throughout Attica and Boeotia. According to the Homeric hymn to Hermes, he was the son of Zeus and Maia, one of the seven Pleiades and a daughter of Atlas and Pleione. Maia lived all alone in a cave on Mount Kylene in southern Arcadia. Zeus found her there, and they slept together during a dark night when Hera was asleep and did not notice him leaving. This is significant because his tricky nature derives from the fact that he was conceived in the deep dark night, when both gods and men were asleep. According to the hymn, quote, The child whom she bore was devious, winning in his cleverness, a robber, a driver of cattle, a guide of dreams, a spy in the night, a watcher at the door who soon was about to make manifest renowned deeds amongst the immortal gods, end quote. From the very first day, the child proved that he was precocious. He began by tricking his mother and sneaking off to steal the 50 cattle of Apollo in Pieria. On the way, however, he found an empty turtle shell. Using his wits, he used it to construct the very first musical instrument, the stringed lyre, by adding cattle skin around the shell and cords of lamb intestines as the strings, which he strung tightly using a piece of wood. When he arrived at Pieria, he compelled Apollo's cattle to walk backwards so that it would look like they were headed towards the meadow instead of away from it. Furthermore, he later tied a branch to their tails to cover up their tracks. And for his own tracks, he himself wore sandals made from branches and leaves. He drove them all the way to the outskirts of Pylos, and on the banks of the river Alpheus, he sacrificed two of the cattle to the twelve Olympian gods. He also made a sacrifice to himself so that he could enjoy the aroma which is what the gods enjoy most about animal sacrifices. After concealing the rest of the herd, Hermes snuck back into his cave and hid there in his cradle. But an elderly man had seen Hermes stealing the cattle, and so he ran off and told Apollo. An enraged Apollo rushed to the cave in Kylene and found the baby Hermes in his cradle. He grabbed the one-day-old baby and began threatening him with violence until he brought back his cattle. But Hermes insisted on his innocence. So Apollo took him up to Mount Olympus, hoping to achieve justice from Zeus, and the two pled their cases before him. 
Little Hermes acted pitiful while telling some fairly transparent lies. He said that he is only one day old and couldn't possibly have done it, and that he doesn't even know what cows are. Zeus was tricked by Hermes' cunning wiles and rather enjoyed his storytelling capabilities, and so he just laughed off the whole affair. He ordered Hermes to return the cattle and be done with the whole trick. Hermes did as he was told, but he was also anxious to win Apollo over, not wanting him as an enemy for the rest of his life. So in the end, he offered his newly created lyre to him as a gift. Apollo rebuffed his gift at first, but when he heard him play it, he was entranced. He then gratefully accepted it as Hermes' token of apology. From then onwards, the lyre became the special instrument of Apollo, and the two brothers had a close relationship. If, as it seems likely from the Linear B tablets, Hermes had a Mycenaean predecessor, it is not surprising to find a center for his cult in mountainous Arcadia, one of the regions least affected by the upheavals at the end of the Bronze Age. Because for the people who support themselves by herding sheep and goats, as most Arcadians did, maintaining boundaries and preventing the theft of one's flocks, or thieving a neighbor's flocks undetected, are of paramount importance. As we mentioned, Arcadia was recognized as the god's birthplace, and his worship was unusually prominent in this land, where myth and cult tie him to mountain peaks, especially Kylene. In Homer's Odyssey, and other archaic poetry, he receives the epithet Kylenios. Although no cave on Kylene has been confirmed as a cultic counterpart of the one described in the Homeric hymn to Hermes, Pausanias speaks of a ruined temple in the mountain where his wooden cult statue dwelled. In the hills of Feni ran three sources of water that were sacred to Hermes because it was believed that he had been bathed in them at birth. Small archaic bronzes of Hermes carrying a sheep over his shoulders for sacrifice had been also found in Arcadia, so it is possible that the shepherds thought of him as their patron god, and the Arcadians may even have visualized him as a fellow herdsman. From this, he also received the epithet Kryphoros, or ram-bearer. The image of Hermes evolved and varied according to Greek art and culture. During the archaic period, he was usually depicted as a bearded, mature man, and dressed as a traveler. But during the classical and Hellenistic periods, he was usually depicted young and nude, as befits the god of speech and of athletics. More on that shortly. At all times, though, several of his characteristic objects are present as identification, but not always altogether. At one point, Apollo offered Hermes a gift of a golden staff, or herald's wand, which came to be known in Greek as the Kerkeion, and the Caducus in Latin. It became a common attribute of him in art, and appears in the form of two snakes wrapped around a winged staff, with carvings of the other gods. His other symbols include the herma, the rooster, the tortoise, the goat, and a satchel or pouch. He also received two objects from his father that he is often shown wearing, those being a broad-rimmed hat typical of travelers that had wings attached, called the patasis, and his winged sandals, called padilla. These two objects, along with the Kerkion, symbolize the fact that Hermes supplanted the Titanus Iris and became the messenger of the Olympian gods. According to Hesiod, Iris and Arche were fraternal twins, and during the Titanomachy, the former acted as the messenger for the gods and the latter for the Titans. When the Olympians won, Zeus punished Arche by depriving her of her wings and casting her into Tartarus, with the rest of the vanquished Titans. Arche's wings were later given to Peleus and Thetis as a gift on their wedding day, who in turn later gave them to their son Achilles, which is where his epithet, Podarchus, or swift-footed, was thought to have come from. Iris was said to have golden wings, and she traveled on the rainbow with the Kerkion, 
while carrying messages from the gods to mortals. And so, as the personification of a rainbow, she symbolizes the link between the heavens and the earth. She travels with the speed of wind from one end of the world to the other, and into the depths of the sea and the underworld. Though Iris was principally associated with communication and messages, she was also believed to aid in the fulfillment of humans' prayers, either by fulfilling them herself or by bringing them to the attention of other deities. Although she is frequently mentioned as a divine messenger and in the Iliad as well, in the Odyssey she was replaced in this role by Hermes, and seems to fade into a more secondary role. Zeus had been pleased with all of Hermes' trickery, which saved him many times during dangerous battles. Hermes knew how to steal from the enemy and gain an advantage, and he knew how to slip into difficult places and to emerge safely. Therefore, Zeus chose him as the special emissary and messenger for the Olympians. Holding in his hand the Kerkion, so that he was recognized as the official messenger of the gods by everyone, and wearing his patasis and padilla, he delivered their orders as fast as the wind. Thanks to his versatility and inventive intelligence, he carried out every difficult mission. For example, he was involved in relaying Zeus's commands to the Greek and Trojan heroes during the Trojan War and its aftermath. It was he, in fact, who led Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena to Paris, so that the latter could pass judgment on which goddess was the most beautiful. However, his mythic function as the herald and messenger of the gods was only spoke about in literature and was not emphasized in cultic worship. But as Hades' messenger, Hermes became known as the Psychopompus, since he was the escort of the souls of the dead to their final home in the underworld. We discuss the underworld in greater detail in episode 60. In the last book of the Odyssey, when Odysseus killed the suitors of his wife, Hermes shepherds their souls to Hades with his Kerkion. Hermes' mythic role as the Psychopompus is reflected in religious practice at grave sites through prayers and offerings to Hermes Chthonios, or of the underworld attested also in Thessaly and Argos. As the god of pathways and boundaries, Hermes was an ideal god for journeys between the worlds of the living and the dead. In Aeschylus' libation bearers, Orestes and Electra pray at their father's grave to Hermes Chthonios, the deity who can summon spirits from under the earth. Usually invoked in private contexts, including curses and binding spells, Hermes Chthonios occasionally plays a role in public festivals honoring the dead. After the Persian Wars, the heroic dead of Plataea were summoned to an annual banquet in their honor by means of prayers to Zeus and Hermes Chthonios, and on the last day of the Anthesteria, a festival to Dionysus, which we discussed in episode 48, the Athenians honored the dead by offering sacrifices solely to Hermes Chthonios. On the other hand, the necromantic aspect of Hermes is balanced by his protection of souls in their vulnerable state between sleeping and waking. Homer in the Odyssey mentions that the Phaeacians offered libations to Hermes before going to sleep, while Apollodorus of Athens calls Hermes the Oneropompus, or conductor of dreams, and says that he is a guardian of those who are sleeping. In fact, people often oriented themselves so that the foot of their bed faced an image of Hermes, and then prayed to him before sleeping. He also uses his Kerkion to lull mortals to sleep and to awaken them. Hermes was not only loved by the immortal gods, but also by the mortal humans. In fact, Homer and Hesiod portray him as the benefactor of mortals, because he offered his help generously to everyone. On several occasions, he helped his father with his love affairs, and saved the children from those unions from Hera's wrath. In fact, he received the epithet Argephantes, meaning Argus Slayer, because he killed the hundred-eyed giant Argus, who was watching over Io the Argive princess who had been transformed into a cow and who was kept in the sanctuary of Hera herself in Argos. 
He placed a charm on Argus's eyes with his Karakion to cause the giant to sleep so they could kill him. Despite this, he always got on well with Hera, though. He also released Ares from the brazen fetters that the Aloidae giants, Otis and Ephialtes, had him under. He particularly loved the demigods, such as Heracles and Perseus. Although he was a divine ally of the Greeks against the Trojans, he did protect Priam when he went to the Greek camp to retrieve the body of his son Hector and accompany him back to Troy. He particularly cared for Odysseus, who was his great-grandson, via his son Autolycus, and protected him during the Trojan War and on his way back home to Ithaca. In the Odyssey, he informs him about the fate of his companions, who were turned into animals by the power of Circe. He instructs Odysseus to protect himself by chewing a magic herb. He also told Calypso of Zeus's order to free Odysseus from her island so that he could continue his journey back home. Hermes' relationship with a forest nymph of Arcadia, named Orsinoea, resulted in the birth of Pan. He was a very peculiar being, having an upper body in the form of a goat, with hair, horns, and ears, and with a human torso, standing upright atop goat-like hind legs. His mother was frightened and abandoned him, but Hermes took him up to Mount Olympus, where the gods welcomed him as an immortal because he was a cheerful baby that smiled at everyone. And so he became distinctive amongst the Greek gods because of his hybrid human-animal form. He was a patron of fertility, the soul of nature, and the patron of shepherds and flocks. And so it's only natural then that his father's herms, more on those shortly, also found themselves adorning gardens. On a vase, the goat-like god Pan is shown pursuing a young shepherd boy, and behind them is a herm. And so Hermes too was a fertility god for gardens and places that are hard to get to. Pan was originally a guardian of the goats, whose character he shares, but he achieved Panhellenic status only in the 5th century BC, when his cult was introduced from Arcadia to Athens, and rapidly diffused to the rest of the Greek world. Many etymologies have been put forward for his name. Most convincing makes it a cognate of the Latin pastor, so that Pan is the one who grazes the flocks. In Arcadia itself, Pan's myth and cult were not standardized, though. There were conflicting views of his genealogy, the most common being that he was the son of Zeus and twin of the national hero Arcus. His connection with Zeus sprang from their association on Mount Lycaon, the sacred mountain of the Arcadians. Pan possessed a sanctuary on the southern slopes of the mountain, where in keeping with his identity as both a goat and a goat herd, he offered asylum to any animal being pursued by a lycos, or wolf. A votive dump, excavated there, revealed many late archaic and early classical bronze figurines, cut-out plaques, and terracottas with subjects of hunters, men carrying animals for sacrifice, and images of Hermes. Both youthful and mature males are depicted, and the bronzes include dead foxes, which was a standard courtship gift presented by adult males to their favorite youths. Inscribed pots show that the sanctuary was sacred to Pan, whose role as a god of the hunt and master of animals made him well-suited, like Hermes, to oversee maturation rituals. The Athenians believed that Pan sent them a message on the eve of the Battle of Marathon via Pheidippides, who ran 233 kilometers to seek aid from the Spartans against the Persians. Passing through Arcadia, he saw an apparition of the god, who asked why the Athenians did not honor him in spite of the good deeds that he had done and would yet do for them. 
When they learned of Pan's epiphany, the Athenians concluded that he had contributed to the victory at Marathon and instituted his worship with an annual festival including a torch race. Pan's official sanctuary was a grotto on the northwestern slope of the Acropolis, but he quickly became a resident of the Attic countryside, where he was worshipped together with the nymphs and other rustic gods in numerous cave shrines. Contrary to the practice in Arcadia, where Pan possessed temples and sanctuaries like those of other deities, the rest of the Greek world viewed the cave as the proper dwelling for this god of the wild places. After 490 BC, the cults of these caves, including one near Marathon, gained a wider and more affluent clientele who dedicated pots, small metal items, and marble votive reliefs. Folk traditions, though, illustrate the less benevolent side of Pan, connecting him with mysterious noises, particularly the echoes heard in mountainous terrain, with panic stemming from his name, which is the phenomenon of sudden terror, seemingly without cause, that comes over armies in the night, and with certain types of illness involving apparent possession by the god in the form of seizures. Pan's association with madness also brought him into connection with ecstatic forms of worship, such as the cults of Dionysus and Meter Kibale, though always as a subordinate figure. Pindar refers to the Boeotian Pan as the dog of Meter. We also discussed more myths of Pan and his famous pipes in episode 55, as he was often found in the retinue of Dionysus as a dancer, wine lover, and a skillful pipe player. As the god of the wind, Hermes had the ability to travel and reach every place, which is why he received the epithet Hodios, as the patron of travelers. Similar to his role as a herdsman, Hermes accompanies and protects the traveler, just as the shepherd guides and watches over his flocks. And so the Greeks liked to believe that Hermes was watching over them as they journeyed, and along the roads they erected many Hermi, or statues that were set up in honor of Hermes. These statues were a rectangular-shaped pillar of stone or bronze, with a bust of a bearded Hermes on top, and a giant erect phallus protruding out from the base. They probably developed from earlier wooden versions, used as wayside markers. Around 520 BC, Hipparchus, the brother of the Athenian tyrant Hippias, set up stone herms marking the halfway points on the roads from each Attic deem to the Athenian Agora, where the altar of the twelve gods had been designated as the city center. Edifying verses supplied by Hipparchus himself, such as walk with just intent and deceive not a friend, were carved upon the herms. These were enthusiastically received, and soon so many herms were clustered at the principal entrance to the Athenian Agora that the spot became known simply as the Herms. Magistrates and victorious generals, like Cimon, dedicated herms there, and one herm in particular, known as Hermes Agoraeus, had its own altar. From the late 6th century BC onwards, Herms served the Athenians and other Greeks not only as milestones and boundary markers, but were placed outside homes to act as guardians, warding off any evil spirits or thieves who might try to enter uninvited. Any passers-by would give some token of respect to the Herm, which became an important focus of popular piety. They were regularly saluted and anointed with oil and garland, and scenes of private sacrifice before Herms are very common on Attic vases. It has been argued that Hermes' phallicism is tied to his pastoral and generative function. Like his equally phallic compatriot Pan, Hermes multiplies the flocks. Since gods typically become practitioners of the activities they rule, it is not surprising to find that Hermes has a lusty side. 
Hermes, like his father, often fell in love with beautiful young girls and nymphs of the forests. The Homeric hymn to Aphrodite tells how he made it with the nymphs in the recesses of caves, and Hermes is shown as the constant companion of the nymphs on votive reliefs and in private observances of herdsmen, such as the swineherd Eumaeus in the Odyssey, who sets aside sacrifices for Hermes and the nymphs at his meal. On this reading, the phallus is lucky because it is symbolic of fertility and thus prosperity. Hermes' regular cultic connections with Aphrodite are also relevant to his phallicism. Where they appear as a pair, the focus of the cult is usually on human sexuality. In the aforementioned hymn, Hermes tried to make Aphrodite fall for him by telling her beautiful things, and eventually she did. From their relationship came the beautiful Pytho, who, like her father, had the charisma to persuade others with their words, as well as Hermaphroditus, who was exceptionally handsome, so much so that a water nymph named Salmachus fell madly in love with him and asked the gods to be united with him forever. And this literally came to pass, as their bodies were merged into one, as an immortal deity that now possessed both sexes. And so because of this, the term hermaphrodite has come to describe someone who possesses both masculine and feminine sexual qualities. To a large extent, the cult of Hermes was conducted at the private level, meaning that people used modes of worship other than standard city-sponsored sanctuaries and festivals. For example, the fourth day of any month was not only considered to be the best day to have a marriage, but also the day to present offerings of food, often figs or small cakes, at neighborhood Herms. Hermes was a hungry god, parodied in comedy as a food gobbler. His fondness for tasty food and drink is probably a reflection of his role as a provider of good things. Lucky finds and other unexpected good happenings were what the Greeks called hermion which meant essentially good luck, and Hermes sometimes had the epithet Tycon, or lucky. On the other hand, bad luck was also called a stroke of Hermes. Prayers, inscriptions, and votive reliefs, many from the area around Athens, demonstrate that Hermes was grouped in worship with other gods, believed to inhabit the surface of the earth, and to exert an influence over the prosperity of herdsmen. Hermes Pan and the Nymphs was a common triad in prayers and dedications at rural shrines to aid in the multiplication of flocks. Hermes also oversaw the operation of what we might call poor man's oracles, those that can be consulted by people who lack the ability to travel to a major oracle and offer sacrifices there. Instead, they divined by casting knuckle bones or other small objects and searching the resulting patterns for messages from the gods. The Homeric hymn to Hermes says that the youthful god desired to share the prestige that his brother Apollo derived from Delphi, but had to be satisfied with a lesser form of divination, involving the observation of bees. Hermes did possess at least one proper oracle, at Pharis in Achaea, but even this was an informal affair compared to the pomp of Delphi. In the Agora at Pharis stood a shrine of Hermes Agareos, or of the marketplace, facing a hearth surrounded with lamps. In the time of Pausanias, whoever wished to consult the oracle entered the agora at dusk, burned incense on the hearth, lit the lamps, and placed a coin on the altar. Then, having whispered a question in the god's ear, the petitioner covered his own ears so as to block out all sounds. Once out of the agora, he unstopped his ears and received as the oracle the first phrases he heard. In many places, Temples of Hermes were consecrated in conjunction with his lover, Aphrodite, as in Attica, Arcadia, Crete, Samos, and in Magna Graecia. 
Several votive offerings found in his temples revealed his role as initiator of young adulthood, among them soldiers and hunters, since war and certain forms of hunting were seen as ceremonial initiatory ordeals. This function of Hermes explains why some images of him, in temples and other vessels, show him as a teenager. In addition to the aforementioned lyre, Hermes was believed to have invented many types of races in the sports of wrestling and boxing, and therefore, along with Heracles, he was a patron of athletes. Furthermore, as a tireless runner, Hermes constituted a raw model for adolescents practicing in gymnasia and palestrae, or wrestling grounds. In the 5th century BC, statues of Hermes increasingly decorated athletic facilities, where he was worshipped as agonios, or of an athletic competition. Hermes was also worshipped in the sanctuary of the Twelve Gods in Olympia, where the Greeks celebrated the Olympic Games. His statue was held there on an altar dedicated to him and Apollo together. From this time onwards, he was usually portrayed as a beardless, athletic youth with great homoerotic appeal, though stone herms continued to be sculpted with archaic bearded heads. The festival for Hermes, called the Hermea, at Mount Kyllene in Arcadia, was recognized at a Pan-Hellenic level by the 6th century BC, and the athletic contest performed there, called the Hermaean Games, were celebrated at many other sites, including at Athens. In fact, Plato said that Socrates attended a Hermea once. It was celebrated with sacrifices to the gods and with athletes and gymnastics, where warm cloaks were awarded as prizes. Of all of the festivals involving Greek games, these were the most like initiations because participation in them was restricted to young boys and excluded adults. They were an occasion for relatively unrestrained and rowdy competitions for the Ephebes. Pindar's victory odes often mention Hermes as the giver of victory, a god who has charge of contests and the awarding of prizes. In this guise of a youthful god associated with the physical education of boys, Hermes became an archetype of the Ephebi, or young male citizen on the cusp of manhood. While the Ephebic god is typical of the late classical and Hellenistic periods, a few archaic cults, particularly in the Peloponnese and Crete, also featured a youthful Hermes. The Boeotians contested the Arcadian claim that Hermes was born on Kyllene, asserting instead their own local traditions that Mount Kirkaeon, or of the Herald's Wand, witnessed the god's nativity. The Boeotian polis of Tanagra was particularly devoted to Hermes. As in Arcadia, he was regarded there as an ancestor, the partner of the eponymous nymph Tanagra. One of Hermes' main epithets at Tanagra was Creophoros, or ram-bearer. The cult statue, sculpted by Calamus in the early classical period, is reproduced on Tanagran coins, which show a youthful, nude Hermes with a ram draped over his shoulders. It replaced an older, bearded and cloaked type. During the festival of Hermes, the town chose its most beautiful youth to walk the length of the walls, carrying a lamb on his shoulders, just as Hermes once warded off a plague by carrying a ram. The ritual can be interpreted as a purification by which the unfortunate animal, like the pharmacos, or scapegoat, absorbs into itself all of the damning influences threatening the town, or again as a means by which the god, in his guise as the good shepherd, wards off evil. As the city god and protector of Tanagra, Hermes turned away military threats as well. Another of his sanctuaries was dedicated to Hermes Promachos, or the forefighter, who led the Tanagran youths in battle against invading men from Euboea, wielding a strigal as his weapon. 
In the sanctuary of Hermes Permakos in Tanagra, there was a strawberry tree under which it was believed that he had been conceived. The emphasis upon Hermes' youthful beauty and his association with the Phoebes and athletics suggests an origin in the 5th century BC or later for these Tanagran legends, but the cult of Hermes there is no doubt much older. Hermes was also given the epithet Dolios, or Tricky, because he was the god of trickery, robbers, deception, and stealth, as deceit helps you to move into another space, literally or figuratively, in order to get what you want. No cult to Hermes Dolius is attested though, so it probably existed in speech only. Hermes was also given the epithet Logios, as the patron of orators, philosophers, and literary men. In fact, the Greek word Hermenie, or interpretation, derives from his name. Hermes is the interpreter of speech, and he himself is an orator who delivers the orders of Zeus to the mortals or the immortals. As the god of the wind, he also gives tone to speech so that everyone's words can be understood by everyone else. Furthermore, in the works and days of Hesiod, when Zeus orders Hephaestus to create Pandora, the first woman, in order to disgrace humanity as punishment for Prometheus' act of giving fire to men, every god gave her a gift, and Hermes gave her a human voice, meaning lies, seductive words, and a dubious character. He then took her as a wife to Epimetheus, He also made such long and interesting speeches in an effort to cover Zeus's extramarital love affairs. Aeschylus wrote in the Eumenides that Hermes helped Orestes kill Clytemestra under a false identity and other stratagems, and also said that he was the god of searchers, and those who seek things lost or stolen. In Philoctetes, Sophocles invokes Hermes when Odysseus needs to convince Philoctetes to join the Trojan War on the side of the Greeks, and in Euripides' Rhesus, Hermes helps Dolon spy on the Greek navy. In fact, it was Odysseus' relationship to Hermes where he gets his trickster and wily nature. And so, Hermes was also the god of trade, commerce, and contracts, things in which the Greeks also needed to be crafty in speech and deceitful in approach. Statues of the god were in most of the agoras of the ancient Greek cities, as Hermes was a god of commerce, and he was worshipped as agoraios, or of the marketplace. In addition, he is considered to be the divisor of the measures, the weights and the scales, and is sometimes depicted in art holding a coin purse. He was especially honored by merchants as Hermes Cerdus, or Hermes of Profit, in order to sell their goods. And so as we can see, Hermes is an ambiguous character. He guides open roads with his herms, showing travelers where to go, but he also finds roads that weren't in existence. Also, thieves shut down roads, and he is the god of thievery. He helps shepherds keep up their flocks, but also leads them astray. He facilitates trade and communication, but constantly tells lies, even to Zeus. He puts deceitful words in the heart of Pandora when she was created, in order to make her dangerous to men. But when wives and husbands are fighting, he whispers words into their ears to guide them back together again. He also is the god who leads a wife from her father's house to her husband's house after marriage. And so Hermes seems like a contradiction at every turn. But he is the one god who can slip from one space to the next. There is no place that he can't go. This interested the Greeks very much because life is full of barriers that had to be navigated. They believed in using techne, meaning art or skill, of every resource and their wits to get where they were trying to go. The Greeks respected his craftiness through all kinds of techne. Zeus and Apollo fell for his tricks as a baby because they gave way to the spirit of cacometis, or cunning intelligence, with a bit of deception mixed in. 
By giving it into Hermes, Zeus is accepting Cacometis on Mount Olympus. The Greeks appreciated rhetoric, or this ability of cunning language and falsehood to manipulate people to get what you want. The Romans wanted to be straightforward, but not the Greeks. If you can fool somebody to achieve something, then go ahead and do it. On the next episode, we will discuss the various aspects of ancient Greek life in which these two gods had control over. For Hermes, we will discuss how the Greeks traveled throughout the Mediterranean and the merchant-based economy. And for Hephaestus, we will discuss manufacturing and the artisan-based economy. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 68, Travel, Trade, and Work. 